Um, as we turn back to uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, um, this evening I, I want to think um, with you for a few minutes about uh, bitterness, uh, bitterness in life, sadness in life, about about feeling sad. Um, I want to look with you at, at these first eight verses of chapter 7. And um, you might sense that as we read through that earlier, that the writer, the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes has a, has a very alternative view of, of suffering and sadness. Um, maybe if you're not familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes, that the writer, that the preacher um, shows us a perspective on the world where things are not always as they seem. Uh, the world is, is often the opposite uh, of what we, we think it is on the surface and what we assume it to be. Um, Just before the passage that we read earlier in chapter 6, he speaks about material wealth and and those kind of things. And he says that um, uh, it's possible to to be a man or a woman who has everything materially, wealth and possessions and honour, without the power to truly enjoy those things. Um, Material things don't come with enjoyment packaged as standard, as we often assume. Um, He shows that affluence is not necessarily a good thing in itself. It's kind of an upside-down view of the world, isn't it? And now he starts to say in chapter 7 that adversity is not always a bad thing, like we assume it is. He takes a unique view of sadness, And he takes us through a different range of scenarios in life, sad scenarios. And he says amazingly, and kind of shockingly really, sometimes it's better uh, to be in those places. That that word, it gets repeated, doesn't it? The word better. So it's it's there in almost every verse. So sadness, mourning. And adversity, even the day of death, he says, um, can be better for us than something else. Now, it seems as though he's being quite morbid there, doesn't it? He, he takes us around some places. He, he takes us on a tour. And he, and he feels a bit like a pretty miserable tour guide, really. He, he takes us to a crematorium. And he says, it, it's better to be here than in the birthing suite. He takes us to a house where there is crying and mourning, a house of darkness and weeping and loss. And he says, it is better to be here now, crying our eyes out, than in the comedy lounge, laughing our heads off. Um, Feels kind of hard work, this passage, doesn't it? Like a a lot of Ecclesiastes, maybe. But, But he wants to show us that there is a unique opportunity to be had in those dark places and moments in life. There is something valuable in our sadness. Bitter things can sometimes be better for us. Um, For a person who wants to live wisely, to see things rightly, adversity brings an opportunity. Now, how can he say that? How 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 can he... um, look at the world in that way well listen again to verse two and i think this is the key to this chapter or this passage he says it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting for this is the end of all mankind 
and the living will lay it to heart. I think that's the key. Do you see, his concern there is not how you're doing on the surface this evening. His his concern is about what is going on in your heart. What you're thinking of there, deep within. What, What you're laying upon your heart. What's going on there. He wants us to refuse to live life on a kind of superficial level. Uh, And the difficult moments of life can be a better training ground for your heart. So I want to show you this evening three comparisons that he makes on this kind of tour of of the world. And the first comparison he makes is that the day of death is better than the day of birth. That's what he says in verse 1, isn't it? Um, the day of death better than the, better than the day of der, birth. Uh, and if you think about those two days, what, what is the difference between the day of death and the day of birth? They are worlds apart in so many ways, aren't they? Uh, but be thinking what he's thinking. He's thinking about wh- which is better as a trainer of your heart to make you wise in life. So come with him to the birthing suite, to the maternity ward. Come to the, the christening or the baby shower party. What are those days like? What's the birthday like? Well, well, it's full of optimism, isn't it? A new life, that the mood is exciting. There's this feeling of potential, of imagining this new life and what it will achieve and become. The world is their oyster. The day of birth, that there's great hope, isn't there? And excitement. It's not a day to to dwell on the brevity of human life or limitation. It it is a time to say, well, uh, you've got the whole of your life ahead of you, little child. Go and grab it. Make the most of it. But come to the crematorium and it's a very different experience, isn't it? He doesn't want us to think morbidly. He wants us to think deeply. That the day of death brings a unique opportunity. It, it brings a certain clarity where the cold facts of our ultimate destiny are very real. And our condition is, is presented to us. The day of death is better than the day of birth. Not, not because death is better than life. Of course not. It's not, is it? But because in this world, death can be a better teacher of our hearts than the day of birth. Do you know, I'd be willing to bet that that more people, I, I don't know this, but I'd be willing to bet that more people have become Christians at funerals than they have at christenings. Because the day of death is a better preacher of the things that we must do here in this life. Of the reality of, of who we are in relation to God. That, that we are not God. And that we desperately need from him a, a resurrection hope through the Lord Jesus Christ. The last place anyone wants to be is by a graveside, isn't it? On the day of death. Or, or to even think about it and to ponder it. To have death laid upon our hearts. We don't want to think about our brevity 
the 17th century philosopher Blaise Pascal, he said that despite his affliction, man's want, man wants to be happy, but how shall he go about it? Uh, the best thing would be to make himself immortal and to get rid of death. But has, as he can't do that, he has decided instead to just stop thinking about it. Just don't think about it. That, that's what the world says, isn't it? Um, the day of death, j- just blank it out. Put it out of your mind. But the preacher is saying that if, if you go through life doing that, actually you're missing out on an opportunity for some real clarity and, and for some real depth of thought, for a training opportunity for your heart. Putting out on... on Lucidity to bring you to your senses. Coffins give better sermon illustrations than cots, I think. Funerals are sobering moments and people are stopped in their tracks, aren't they, by the day of death. And they're put in a place to consider things very carefully, even just for a moment. And so for the wise person, in a sense, they are a godsend. Because they focus the heart on what really matters. They keep us from drowning ourselves in in frivolous things all of the time and in triviality. I just wonder whether that that's... We can't second guess, can we, what, what the Lord is doing in his wisdom, in his hidden will. But I wonder whether that's part of been what the Lord has been doing over this last year in our nation... The day of death, it may even prove, might it, in his mercy, to bring new life to many. C.S. Lewis famously said that God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts to us in our pain. And that can be better for us, can't it? If our hearts can be trained by difficult things, to look to God in the stark reality of our need. And if that really does happen and we gain life with God, bitter would have been better, wouldn't it, for us in the long run? It's a very alternative view of adversity. But let me show you another comparison that he makes. So the day of death is better than the day of birth. But then he goes on to say that sorrow is better than laughter. Sorrow is better than laughter. So verse 3, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Now, what's what's he talking about there? Well, do you see again his priority? His concern isn't whether you've got a smile on your face all of the time. That might not mean anything, actually. You, you can be all smiles, can't you, when actually underneath you're feeling really hopeless about life. His concern, again, is for your heart. And what's going on there? But it seems upside down again, doesn't it? Sorrow, better than laughter. And we think, oh, come on, what, why so serious, man? Lighten up a little bit. But aren't we often led to believe the myth that, that true gladness, true joy and, and happiness comes when we live a life that is unexamined? And frivolous. Be free and easy. Don't take things too seriously. If you want relief, just get some comic relief. Just smile. 
But he says, no, that the laughter of fools can be like crackling thorns under a pot in verse 6. A few cackles and they disappear. They're, They're frivolous. They don't last. The writer Ibsen said that I'm always having fun, but I'm never happy. The world says, doesn't it, it's much better to be at home with the TV on watching Michael McIntyre than in the house of mourning. But he's saying, no, don't miss the opportunity that comes when sadness comes in your life. The opportunity to listen and to grow. People might try to spend their whole lives laughing and singing, but but missing out actually on a strange, deeper gladness that can come in moments of pain. Um, there's a story that's told by a, a writer called Gerald Sitzer, um, and he talks about the moment when a drunk driver hit car in um, Idaho, in America. And in that moment, he lost his wife, Um, his mother and his four-year-old daughter. Afterwards, he wrote a book called A Grace Disguised. And he's a Christian man. And he wrote about the agonies he and his family and his children had trying to piece their lives together after this accident. He said, I was dizzy and nauseous with the vertigo of grief that overwhelmed me. Um, A few years after that original book that he wrote, he he brought out um, another kind of republished version. Um, And he says in his revised preface, rawness and utter bewilderment have given way to contentment and deep gratitude. He describes the, the bitterness turning out to be redemptive For him and his children and many others, he said this, as strange as it might sound to you, though without the suffering, I wish that every man could experience what I now have. Gerald Sitzer, he he gets Ecclesiastes 7, doesn't he? Somehow God had provided an unexplained gladness. Not despite his sadness, not taking away his sadness and numbing him to it, but in it and through it. He realized that that sometimes sorrow in the end can sometimes be better than just laughing life away. The preacher says it it is possible this evening, it's possible to look at a sad face in the mirror and yet for you to have a strange gladness within. It's not trying to be morbid. It's just trying to get us to think deeply that that sadness can be a better trainer of the heart. There comes a certain clarity, moments of insight into God's love, moments of, of true rest in him, learning what it means to be his child in a very profound way, learning reliance on him, where the experience of his provision and his love and his light can be much greater, actually, in our pain and in our darkness. We know that, don't we? Sometimes God calls us out in, in suffering that he might prepare us for a deeper joy in him and a deeper gladness. 
His whole thing is seeing why adversity isn't always something that we should run from or be embarrassed about or not um, share with other people. On the contrary, verse 4, a fool's heart always wants to laugh it off rather than contemplate and face life's difficulties seriously. But a wise heart senses that often we grow more, that bitter can be better for us. And it's going to be less comfortable at times, isn't it, in life? Verse 5, it's better to hear a rebuke from a wise person than the song of fools. Um, Getting wise criticism isn't nice. Someone pointing out a fault in you, you know, I really hate that. I'd really rather just live through life with everyone liking me and everything going well and the kind of soundtrack of my life always playing on happy. But he's saying, no, when criticized by brother or sister lovingly, when you face difficult things, that is better than the song of fools. It's better than just easy listening, compliments and flattery all of the time. And more generally, the harder things that we go through in life, the less comfortable things often have the better outcomes in the Lord's wisdom. In adversity, we we pray like we've never prayed before, don't we? We lean on God like we've never lent on him before. In adversity, we can say more with the psalmist, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. The day of death better than the day of birth, sorrow better than laughter. And then lastly, um, he says the end is better than the beginning. If you look at verse 8 again, um, he says, Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Now, he's kind of already hinted at this, hasn't he, really? Because, of course, the end of all things for each one of us um, is, is death. And our end is a much better preacher, a much better teacher of what matters in life than the beginning is of our lives. How something is finished means more somehow than the intentions that we all had when something is begun. And that goes for life. What is true about us at the end speaks more about us than what was said when you first arrived in the world. The preacher wants us to see that how you leave the world is far more important than how you came into it. The wise person is somebody who takes the long view in mind, who takes the end view. So what he mentions in verse 1, if you look there, a good name, an ointment. It's a funny thing, isn't it? What's he talking about there? Uh, I think he's thinking there about birth and death. Uh, You can smell of roses um, dressed in ointment at the beginning of your life covered in baby oil. But what is said about you at the end, your name then matters more. Uh, And the end is, is not something that we want to face, is it? But listen again to the training that the end can give our hearts now. The end of our lives can be our friend. The end, it it preaches to us that we're not going to live forever. And we need to be wise about how we live now, today, with the life that we do have, to sober up and and to come to God, who gives us that life. 
And if you can think about the end and you can sense the inevitability of it for each one of us, God says, well, if you can do that, now is your chance. Strike while the iron's hot. Lay these things to heart now. Get right with me and and walk with me. Come to Christ. Trust in him. The end, it calls us to humble ourselves before God and to receive his love before the end arrives. And so you may have messed up at the beginning of your life. You you may have come into the world in very messed up circumstances, um, with a messed up family, home life, and all kinds of problems. You might have messed it up in the middle of your life, if you're a bit older, You might be feeling like your life is pretty messed up now, to be honest. But ending your life with your sins forgiven and the promise of life forever with your Lord and Saviour is what matters in the end, isn't it? The old saying is true that all's well that ends well. In the clarity of this pandemic over the last year, Perhaps we, we've been made to contemplate, haven't we, the end more clearly. And bitter times like this can be better for us when we, we open our hearts. We're urged um, not to focus on it too long, though, don't we? If, if death confronts you, um, just tell him a joke. Get a glass of wine, tell a few jokes, be happy. But we're being forced to stare at death in the face. Not to take our eyes of it. And of course, it's always been there, hasn't it? But it's just been made a lot more obvious. And you know, the preacher is saying here, in in a strange way, that is a gift for those of us in the land of the living. It is a gift when adversity comes because there is an opportunity there where we might seriously contemplate important things And look at our true sources of hope and reassess them and look at our pride that we might run to God and find a deeper gladness that he might save us from drowning in frivolity, triviality all of the time. And to be able to look back on on days of suffering in our lives and, and lay them to heart and to be trained by them and to be wiser because of them. In coming to to know a greater knowledge of an understanding of my need for Jesus Christ and his love and his forgiveness. And to look back and, and to say of those times, now I see, Lord, in your kindness and in your wisdom for me, bitterness was in those times better. Better for me. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, we, we do thank you that you, you give laughter and fun and entertainment and all of these things to bring us joy. But we confess that, that we often use those things to paper over the gaping holes in our lives with distraction. We ask that in your mercy you would use moments of adversity in our lives and the lives of people that we know, to to bring us to our senses. Might we not miss the present opportunities to approach you seriously and soberly? 
Lord, we, we remember those amongst uh, this church congregation who, who find themselves struggling with pain of different kinds. We pray that adversity and sadness and the thought of the end would, would teach us all and train our hearts to seek you and to find resurrection life in Christ and to find deep gladness in him. I pray that our, our bitter experiences now would show us that this world is not all there is. And they would lead us to hunger for Christ's presence in which there is fullness of joy. And we pray in his name. Amen. Amen.